Hebrews chapter 11, we're continuing in the series called The Life of Faith. This will be the fourth part in this series. And we're going to be looking at the life of Noah today and how Noah exemplifies meaningful faith for us. And we'll be trying to glean from his life that we might live lives of faith. So we're going to pick it up in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. It says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this chapter that we've been studying for the last several weeks and we thank you for the lives of faith that have instructed us by your Holy Spirit. And we thank you that we have an awesome object of faith. Jesus, you are the object of our faith. You're the one that we pin our hopes on. You're the one that we look to. You're the one that we adore. You're the one that we live for. It's for your glory that we minister and move and work. And yet we confess that we need help in these things, Lord. We want our faith to increase. We believe, but help our unbelief. We want our vision for your glory and your kingdom to get bigger, Lord. We want our self-absorption to shrink a little more for you to loom larger in our lives. And so we ask that this morning you would speak to us. Thank you that God, you've numbered the hairs upon our head and you know when a sparrow falls from its nest and so you know what's going on in our lives. You know our hopes and our dreams, our fears and our dramas. And we ask that today you'd step into the midst of them and speak to us, that you minister to us. Thank you that no one's far too gone, too far gone for you to reach them. Thank you that there's no mess too big that you can't deal with it. Thank you that you're loving and caring enough to be involved in our lives and that you work our lives for your glory. Teach us about these things this morning, Lord. Give us great faith. I ask that you would anoint me to speak, that every word that comes from these lips would be directly from your throne and for your glory. We ask it together in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, Noah, we have our painting of Noah up here today, and it's a beautiful painting. Uh, well, yeah, praise the Lord. Once again, I'm so astounded at the way our artist captures the face of the character, and it speaks so much. Last week, I was overwhelmed by Enoch and his face of elation as he's being taken up by the Lord, and Noah's got this real look of satisfaction on his face. I mean, he's doing a really big job. I don't know if you know how big the ark was. This is a, a big job for some cat to do, and he's up there on the bow just nailing away, and he has this incredible look, and he's cut. I just noticed, look at Noah. Wow. Not only is he cut, but he's got this incredible look of satisfaction on his face as he's working for the Lord. It's really cool. Come up afterwards and take a look at it. But here's what we find, is that Noah exemplifies faith working. Okay? Noah exemplifies faith at work. Abel, you remember, exemplified faith worshiping. Enoch exemplified faith walking with God, and Enoch exemplifies faith working. And so thus far in this chapter, Hebrews 11, we have the worship of faith, the walk of faith, and now the work of faith today. And this is the order of things as ordained by God. And we've got to catch this. It's very important. You see, God is a God of order. And he orders things as he wishes. In creation, there's a certain order that can be observed that speaks of a creator. In scripture, there's a certain order that speaks of a God of order who's concerned with the priority of things and instructs us how to prioritize our lives. And because of the fallen nature of man, and because of our own proclivity toward rebellion, even after having been born again, I mean, who here sins more than they want to? Given to that, or in light of that proclivity, proclivity, excuse me, we are given to reversing the order of things very often. God shows us in scripture how to order our lives, but we have a tendency to reverse that order or even worse, to skip steps altogether. You see what we realize from the order of Hebrews 11 is that Enoch's walk of faith had to come before Noah's work of faith. 
and Abel's worship in faith had to precede both of them. Here's the order of life. The worship of Christ, the walk with Christ, and then working for Christ. That is the order of things. The worship of God, the walk with God, and then working for God. And we're not to reverse that order, and we see it very clear, spelled out in Hebrews 11, in the life of faith. Now, here's a mistake that we often make, is that we often give priority to working for God over worshiping God and walking with Him. And this is a huge failure, both individually as Christians and corporately as the church. This is a huge failure, and I'll just be transparent with you guys. I've noticed a greater tendency toward this in my own life. As a pastor of, you know, a growing church and a pastor to pastors, a pastor to church planners, I have a lot of responsibility and a lot of stuff, quite frankly, that God has called me to do. And with all the demands, I find myself becoming all about the doing when God is all about being. Now, I'm confessing to you, I'm sharing about my life that there's this danger in my life that it can easily just become about the ministry and ministry becomes God. Ministry all of a sudden becomes the goal and ministry is not the goal. The glory of Jesus Christ is the goal, you understand. Adoring, loving, knowing, walking with Jesus Christ is the goal for his glory. But just kind of the way that we are, you know, we're just people that like to get her done. You know what I'm talking about. That old cowboy expression, I think it's one. I've seen it on bumper stickers. Get it in. <laughs> you know, we're just kind of like that. And I'm very much like that. That's very much my personality. And so I find that in my life, I have to reprioritize frequently. In fact, daily. I've got to slow down and say, okay, okay. It's not about what I'm going to do for God. It's about being with God. It's not about working for him. It's about worshiping him. And so I've really got to just slow down and stop and think about that daily. And you know what helps me think about it is Christ's interaction with Martha and Mary. You remember that from Luke chapter 10? And he had a couple things to say to each one of them. You know, Martha was busy with all this stuff and she was working for the Lord. She was serving the Lord. It was a noble thing that she endeavored to do. I mean, Jesus was in her house and she said, I want to make him a meal. That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And she's making him a meal. And then Mary's just sitting at Jesus' feet listening to his word. And you know, Martha got all bummed out and that's a total type A thing. We get all, and I say we because I'm that way, we get all bummed out when someone's not doing enough. And she goes, Lord, tell Mary to help me out here. And the Lord says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. There's only one thing that is necessary. And Mary has chosen the good part. And it will not be taken from her. All she was doing was sitting at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. She was with the Lord. That bogged Martha the worker. But it pleased the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's who we want to please. We don't live to please pastors. We don't live to please churches. We don't live to please organizations or other people. Nor do we live to please ourselves. We live to please Jesus Christ. And please remember that Jesus Christ only ever said about one person that the act in which they engaged would be spoken of in memory of them wherever the gospel went forth. And it was about Mary who poured the alabaster vial of perfume out on his feet in worship. And he said in Mark 14, 9, this act which she has done will be spoken of in memory of her wherever the gospel goes forth. He didn't say that about Abraham, though he's a father of faith. He didn't say that about anybody else in all scripture. He didn't even say about good old Noah. Only about Mary. And all she did was give priority to the act of worship. My brothers and my sisters, get your lives in line. It starts with authentic and sincere worship of God which yields a life of walking with God, which then will produce fruitful work for God. And you know what? I want to take a moment to confess and repent on behalf of the church because the church has really failed in this. Here's what we have a proclivity to do with converts is we get converts and we want to make them workers right away. 
Get them involved. Get them involved in evangelism. Get them involved in children's ministry. Get them serving here and there and practically in doing this and that. And so the church has gotten pretty good at making workers, but really we're called to make worshipers. We're supposed to make worshipers first. And so I want to take a moment and sincerely confess and repent on behalf of the church and Christian organizations that have exalted working above worshiping. A.W. Tozer says that when we catch the true life of worship, then the work that flows out of it will have eternity in it. The truth is that ministry flows from intimacy. The more intimate we are with Christ, the more effective that we're going to be in ministry. And it's never, ever the other way around. True ministry flows from true intimacy. So we need to pay careful attention to the order and the detail of things as supplied by the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Here's a quote from Arthur Pink. He says, God is a God of order, and the moment we depart from his arrangements, confusion with all of its attendant evils at once ensues. I'll testify that that's true. When I make it all about the doing and not about the being, I get confused. I forget the goal. I forget the real motive, the glory of God. Loving and knowing Jesus Christ. And confusion sets into my life. And all of a sudden, I'm not as effective as a husband. I'm not as effective as a father. I'm not a good brother in the body of Christ anymore. I'm not as effective as a pastor and a shepherd and a church planner anymore. Confusion sets in and the life gets weird. So I want you to think about your own lives. I found that when I make worshiping and walking with God the priority, that there's a real profound and holy clarity that comes to life. And I want clarity in my fatherhood, as a husband, as a minister. I want clarity in my life. And it comes when we make Jesus the center and the focus, giving ourselves to Christ, walking with Christ, and then working for Christ. Maybe it'll help us to lay hold of this if we begin to understand why we are invited into God's work, this is a big deal. Because it's clear from Scripture that we are invited into God's mission. It's clear that God is a missionary God. That God is on a mission in the world around you, at your workplace, in your family, amongst your friends. God is on mission. And he invites us into his mission. It's not the church's mission. It's not our mission. It's his mission. He invites us in. But here's what helps us to understand. Why does he invite us? Well, first I'll tell you why he does not. The reason why it's not, whatever I'm trying to say, is this. <laughs> God does not need you. You must understand that. God does not need you. A true and correct theology is that God is all-sufficient. He's all-sufficient. He existed a long time before you ever did. And he was just fine without you. Remember when you're growing up and you get to that arrogant adolescent stage and you think your parents are idiots? Remember that? I'm sorry, mom and dad. My mom and dad are here. I remember that so well. It seemed like mine lasted so long. I'm sorry. Maybe I'm still in it a little bit. Forgive me. But you remember that stage and you're telling them, duh, duh, what are you doing? Don't you understand? Duh, duh, this and that. And I remember my dad looking at me and saying, Brit, somehow I survived a long time before you were ever born. <laughs> you know, he didn't need me in that sense. He was okay before I came along. But he loves me. But he loves me. Now, God doesn't need you. He really doesn't need you. But he loves you. Now, listen. It should be incredibly freeing to us that God doesn't need us when it comes to his work. You know why? Because I'm already overwhelmed with the needs. I mean, I've got a four-year-old daughter who desperately needs me. You know, I was coming home from speaking at the men's conference in Seattle yesterday and uh, the previous days in San Francisco before that and just so much touring and speaking and leading and all these things and I was just exhausted and I flew into LAX last night and my sister was driving me home from LAX and I called home to check in with my family and I talked to my wife first and then my son Isaiah and then she put Daisy on the phone, my little four-year-old and Daisy gets on the phone and the first thing she says is, Daddy, I want to go to McDonald's. 
Now, don't misunderstand. No offense against McDonald's. We're just not a family that goes to McDonald's that often. It's not, you know, where I go. But somehow she got in her mind that she needed something from McDonald's. And so the first thing she said, Daddy had been gone for four days. The first thing is, I want to go to McDonald's. Now, that's a little thing. But it's indicative of the need that my daughter has of me as a father. That she desperately needs her father. And I come home from work. And you know, there's a lot of needs at work. I mean, the needs are overwhelming. I'm overwhelmed with the needs. And I come home and immediately, Daddy McDonald's. And immediately my son, Daddy skateboarding. Daddy bike ride. Daddy, let's go. And they both need me. And they need a lot of my attention. And then my wife. My wife needs me. And I don't know if you men have discovered this yet, but your wife needs you to listen to her. Eureka, wow. You know, my job is such that I listen to people whine and complain all day. I don't know if you know, but I'm a pastor. It's like 90% of my job listening to people cry and complain. So then I come home and I, I'm kind of kidding. Wow, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Just not, not you guys, other people. People from other churches. know, and so there's a lot, this is true for all of us, there's a lot of needs at work, and we come home, there's a lot of needs with the kids, and then there's needs with the spouses, and I want to tell you that it's so freeing to me to discover that God doesn't need me. Can you imagine work needs me, my daughter needs me, my son needs me, my wife needs me, my friend needs me, God needs me. What, God needs me? It's overwhelming, but you see, God doesn't need you, and that should be so freeing. God doesn't need you. That's not why he invites you into his work. He'll accomplish it without you. But he loves you. And the reason that he invites you into his work is because he loves you. You see, love by nature is invitational. Love by nature reaches out and includes. That's what love does. You know, I love my son, so I try to include him in the things that I'm doing. You know, I'm into dirt biking, so I got him a little mini dirt bike. I love surfing, so he's got a little surfboard. I love playing guitar, and so I got him a little guitar. You know, because love includes and love involves in passions. God loves you, and so he wants to include you in his passion and in his passions and in his mission and in the missions that are going on. That's why he invites you in. That is why we work for God. But you see, the fundamental failure is to try to work for God before marinating in the love of God. Because the mission and the invitation and the great commission flows out of that love relationship. And if we get the priority wrong, then it just doesn't work right. So worship God and walk with God that you might experience the fullness of his love and love him. And then work will flow out of that. And if you just worship God and walk with God long enough, you'll get involved in God's work. Don't even worry about it. Nobody's going to have to peer pressure you. The church and the pastors aren't going to have to put heavy weight on you. No one's going to have to coerce you. If you're a worshiper, you'll become a worker. That's the absolute truth. But if you're a worker that's not worshiping, you better get right. It'll shipwreck your life and your ministry. Now, Noah exemplifies faith working. Let's just take a look at some of that work in Genesis 6. Genesis chapter 6. Uh, we're going to have to kind of skip some stuff for time's sake. I just gave a 20-minute introduction. Genesis 6, start reading verse 5. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. 
And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah, but Noah, okay, there's something different. But Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Ah, Noah walked with God. And Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of the Lord, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence because of them and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark. Stop right there. What can we glean from what God called Noah to do from this life of faith? Well, there's three words that I want you to think about right now. I want you to think about belief, adjustment, and building. Okay, get those three words, belief, adjustment, and building. These are the three actions of the life of faith that we see in Noah. First, he believed what God said about the future. And so number two, he adjusted his life accordingly. And so number three, he built the ark faithfully. He believed what God said about the future, so he adjusted his life accordingly, and then he built the ark faithfully. Believe adjust, build. The life of faith does these three things. I want you to notice before we unpack those concepts is that there were three outcomes to them mentioned in Hebrews eleven seven. Number one, that Noah's family was saved. Number two, that the wicked were proven to be wrong. And number three, Noah was considered to be righteous. So Noah's life of faith accomplished those three things. His family was saved. Think about that now. Don't let this be abstract. Think about your wife and your kids in this world. His family was saved. The wicked were proven wrong. Think about the voices that are dissenting and attacking and trying to detract from the authority of the Bible and the person of Jesus Christ. And finally, he was considered righteous. Think about our standing before God. Notice that he was considered righteous because of faith and not because of work. By faith, he was considered righteous. So we see the value then of the life of faith that believes, adjusts, and builds. Belief that is sincere always brings life adjustment. And what we see is that with reverence and obedience, Noah took God at his word. That's very important. He took God at his word and he did so according to Hebrews eleven seven, with reverence and obedience. And I want to suggest to you that it would have been very easy to think that God's word to know was foolishness. And yet he believed it and he staked everything on it. Notice that. It totally changed his life. He so believed what God said about the future, it totally changed his life. And I want to tell you that he had a lot less evidence than we have for believing God. And he had a lot more opposition than we have. There's a church, there's a remnant in the world today. Wasn't nobody for God back in the day, but Noah. Everybody else was against. And yet Noah believed with less evidence and more opposition. And so we have those wonderful verses, verses 8 and 9 of Genesis 6, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. And Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God. And you remember what that means from last week. We talked about place and path and pace. Noah was going to God's place on God's path at God's pace. And so that profoundly affected his life. And what it yielded in his life was a concentrated and purposeful effort to work for God. A concentrated and purposeful effort. His life became those things. Now, that choice is before every one of us. Everyone in this house of God today has that choice. Whether or not you're gonna believe God and act on that belief. I want you to notice 
that by believing God, Noah avoided disaster. Not only for himself, but for his family. Now let's not take this too lightly. Noah did not pick and choose what he would believe and what he would obey. He believed and obeyed exactly as the Lord said. It says later on in that chapter and in the next. He did just as the Lord told him to do. He didn't pick and choose. And it avoided disaster in his life and for his whole family. This concerns me as a father and a husband. I want the well-being of my family. And I, I begin to understand that the well-being of my family is to some degree dependent on my obedience as a man of God. My faith, my belief, my choice to believe God and act upon it. Because sin never happens in a vacuum. We would love if our sin was totally isolated and never affected anybody else. But my sin affects my wife and my kids. And my sin affects you guys. And yours affects me. That's just the way God designed it to be. Sin doesn't happen in a vacuum. And through his careful obedience, which was yielded from his authentic faith, he saved himself and his family from disaster. God had warned him and he heeded the warning. It says in Hebrews eleven seven, God warned him. Now we are warned all the time. Psalm 119 says, by the scriptures, a servant of God is warned. And what do we do with those warnings? And warnings come to us in a lot of ways. Not only through the Bible, but through God's prophetic voice. Warnings also come to us through the church. Warnings come to us through our conscience, which is a gift from God. Warnings come to us through advice and rebuke from godly people. Warnings might come to us through a sermon or a book. And warnings can come to us through circumstances. But whichever way they come, if we neglect them, we put ourselves and our families in danger. God told Joshua in Joshua 1.7, Be strong and be courageous, only be very careful to do all that my servant Moses commanded you to do. For if you do that, you will have success wherever you go. You see, we have all these warnings from God because he cares. You know, when I'm walking down the street with my little Daisy Love, we like to go on walks and she rides her bike and she's on training wheels and she's just nuts. She loves to speed ahead and just swerve around and we live on a fairly busy street. And so I'm always saying, Daisy, there's a car coming. Daisy, there's a car up there. Daisy, they can't see you up there. Daisy, you're going around the corner. Slow down. Daisy, pull over to the side. As a father who radically loves her, I am always warning her. And if she ignores these warnings, it puts her life in danger. And this is only a living parable of the relationship between you and God. He is your father who radically and desperately loves you, who is concerned with all your comings and your goings. And when we ignore him, we put ourselves and our families in danger. The warnings are by love. And when we believe them, sincere belief will always bring life adjustment. Daisy believes me and hears me that a car is coming. She's going to adjust her course and pull over to the side. She's going to adjust her speed and slow down and stop. You see, sincere belief always brings life adjustment. Now, adjustments are those things that we do to make our lives more consonant with, that is to say, more in harmony with God's heart and God's will. Adjustments are those things that we do, those decisions that we make to align our lives with God's heart and with God's will. You see, faith moved Noah to action. Faith moves us to action. Faith and obedience are bound up together. If you trust God, you will obey God. As I've said to you before, what you do is what you truly believe. It was made evident that Noah believed by what he did. Don't tell me what you believe. Show me what you believe is what the Bible says in James 2. That old proverb is true. Actions speak louder than words. Nowhere is this more true than in the realm of Christianity. Now, there's no doubt that Noah had to radically rearrange his life to do what God was calling him to do. God called him to build a boat, and according to verse 3, it would be 120 years that he would be building that boat. 120 years of his life he spent building the boat. That required some little adjustments. 
some little changes in the schedule. You know, he got out his day planner and said, oh boy, just slammed. I mean, whew, let me look in 80 years from now. Oh Lord, just booked. I mean, I could pencil you in in like 90 years. <laughs> See, that doesn't work with God. He had to make some adjustments right now to align himself with God's will and God's purpose. And I'll suggest to you that he probably didn't always feel like it. There was probably days that Noah woke up and looked at the pyre, pile of gopher wood and just said, oh, vey, not again. <laughs> really building again? I mean, this thing is taking forever. The boat was 450 feet long, you understand. 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. This is a big old boat. Noah was committed to the task for 120 years. To commit to that task, he had to make some adjustments in his life. Let me be somewhat autobiographical for a moment. There came a time in my life when I was really falling in love with Jesus Christ, really becoming a worshiper, really starting to walk with Jesus Christ. And it was at that time that he opened my eyes to the mission field that was around me. All of a sudden, I realized that the kids that I surfed with every day at the beach down here at Tar Pits knew nothing about Jesus. And all of a sudden, I sensed, as I, I had never sensed it before, but now that I'm a worshiper and I'm walking with God, suddenly I sense that I'm invited into the work of God. That he wanted me, least likely of all, if you grew up with me in this town, Jen, you know what I'm talking about. That he wanted me to tell these kids about Jesus. So I started telling these kids about Jesus and they came over to my parents' house for a Bible study and some of them got saved, so on and so forth. And the Bible study grew and it turned into a college ministry at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara, and that grew to several hundred people. Well, during this time, I was working in the family business, which was a surfboard business. And I was shaping surfboards and I was uh, coaching the amateur team and, and recruiting people for the team. And uh, I was doing all the marketing and advertising. So I had an incredibly full plate there in the family business. But the ministry was really growing. There were hundreds of people now involved in the ministry. And so that meant not only that I was teaching, and I was also now getting invitations to go all around the world and teach the Bible. Not only was I teaching a lot, which required that I had to study a lot, but I was discipling a lot because ministry is discipleship. And so there are lots of young men that I needed to disciple and pour into, and there's a lot of counseling to do, and there are camps and trips and all these different things. A tremendous demand upon my time. And yet I knew God was calling me to do it. And so here's what I did. This is just me. I'm not telling you what to do, but for me, I had to adjust my life. And so at that time, I decided, you know what? I'm going to start getting up at 4 a.m. every morning to spend time with the Lord, to prepare my heart to do the things I need to do with him and for him. And so I started getting up at 4 a.m. every morning, and I just go and sit on this chair and drink some tea or some coffee and read the Bible and worship God and spend time with him. And I'd be done, you know, before the sun came out. And then I could go to the family business and shape surfboards and I'd be done by noon. And then I was out of there to disciple, to minister, to study, to teach, to lead and do all the other things that God was calling me to do. But it took a radical adjustment in my life. Quite frankly, I gave up sleeping. That worked for me. It doesn't work for everybody. <laughs> but there was an adjustment that had to take place in my life for me to be obedient. You know, I gave up things like snowboarding. I mean, I just didn't have time to go on snowboard trips anymore. I gave up things like going on surf trips and going to surf contests and doing all these other things and hanging out for hours just playing guitar with my friends. I just laid those things aside to be obedient to what God was calling me to do. And what I found is that God is a giver and not a taker. And anything that I surrendered to him, he blessed me far more than I could ever have imagined. That's just how God is. But, and please don't think I'm boasting. I'm telling you what God did in my life. There were some adjustments that were necessary to be involved in God's mission and to obey God's call. This is always true. And here's the problem. Many people are not willing to adjust. They just don't want to adjust. They just have an aversion to change. We all do to one degree or another. And there's just a certain degree of comfort and rest and recreation and relaxation. And very seldom do people trust God enough to surrender those things and believe that they'll actually be satisfied in Christ. Dude, I'm way more stoked on Jesus than I ever was on snowboarding. 
I'm way more satisfied in Jesus Christ than I ever was in Fiji or the Cook Islands or Tahiti or Mexico or wherever I was surfing. I'm far more satisfied in Christ. But you see, that takes faith. And I'm sure that Noah had a life. We're not told what Noah's life is, but we can assume the dude had a life. He probably did things before God said, by the way, build a 450-foot boat for the next 120 years. He had to adjust. Sincere faith will always cause us to make adjustments in our life in order that we can build for God's purposes. Now, building is what we do when we are convinced that God's will and God's glory and God's kingdom are most important. Then we begin to build toward God's glory and God's kingdom and according to God's will. And so the life of faith then is involved in believing, adjusting, and building. And so we need to ask ourselves, what do we believe God has said or is doing and how then should we adjust? What does God want to do in your marriage? How do you need to adjust? What does God want to do with your kids? How do you need to adjust? What does God want to do in your workplace? How do you need to adjust? What is God doing in the nations? How do you need to adjust? What is God doing in your business? How do you need to adjust? We need to ask these questions. What do you believe God is doing and has said about the future? And how should we adjust and then ask ourselves, how can we then be building for God's purposes? How can I be building my marriage that it glorifies God? Discipling my kids, being a good brother or sister in Christ. How can I be building? And if you're not, you really need to ask yourself, why aren't you? What is it that keeps you from adjusting? What, what, are, you, what are you holding so tightly to? What is that comfort or that security or that thing that you're so obsessed about that it keeps you from adjusting? Here's what I found. God is not a life wrecker. And he's not a joy robber. I radically adjusted my life. Noah radically adjusted his life. And all that I found in that was satisfaction, fulfillment, joy, and wonder. Everybody thinks that God's out to wreck your life. If I adjust my life, he's going to send me into the deepest, darkest jungle and people are going to eat me. It's totally possible. But if that happens, you'll be totally stoked. That's the way God is. You won't find a single missionary that spent their lives in the jungles among cannibals that says, that sucked. None of them will say that. In all of their assessments, it was a life well spent. But there's not a lot of people that believe that. What made what Noah did a work of faith, this believing, this adjusting, this building? Why did it require faith and how can we relate? Well, here's why it required faith. I want you to get these three words now. Culture, call, and task. It required faith because of the culture because of the call and because of the task. Here's what we know about Noah's culture. It was wicked. It was exceedingly wicked. We saw that in verses 5 and verse 11 of Genesis 6. It was an exceedingly wicked culture. Now, here's why it required faith for Noah to obey. Because there was no one holding his hand. There was no support group. There was no church. There was no home group. There was no one cheering him on. No one holding him accountable. No one showing him how. There was no prayer ministry for him. There was no one helping him. No one leading him. And nobody was following him. So it really took faith. Trust in God and God alone, which is where we ought to trust. Don't trust in the church. Don't trust in your small group. Don't trust in your pastor. He's an idiot. Trust in God. Nobody was leading and nobody was following. But he went after the Lord. I'm absolutely sure that people were mocking. I mean, can you imagine being Noah? Do, Do you understand what it was to build this boat? Noah was in the region of Mesopotamia between the Euphrates and the Tigris River. He was hundreds of miles from an ocean. Noah had never seen a boat before. Nobody had ever seen a boat. This is the first boat. Nobody, he had never built a boat. He had never seen a boat. There was no ocean to sail a big boat. 
And he's building a 450 foot boat for 120 years. I imagine in the first year he was bold, just kicking butt, just up there building that boat and people come along and go, Noah, what are you doing? Oh, I'm building a boat because God says judgment is coming and a flood is coming and you're wicked and you're perverse and you need to repent and pursue the glory of God, you scoundrel vermin. And just building the boat. And maybe 10 years into it, Noah, come on, dude, what are you doing? I'm building a boat and you ought to repent. And pretty sure this flood is going and it's coming and you better get right. Can you imagine 90 years into it? Hey, Noah! What are you doing? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> but that's not what we hear about Noah. We hear from Second Peter that Noah was a preacher of righteousness the whole time. Noah stayed on task in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation for 120 years. That took great faith. So the call, the culture, excuse me, is wicked, but the call was unprecedented. As I said, he was hundreds of miles from the ocean. There had never been a flood, but Noah believed God, because that's what faith is. Again, Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith means being sure of things we hope for and knowing that something is real, even if we don't see it. Noah simply believed the Lord and his righteousness consisted of the fact that he took God at his word. Even though the call was unprecedented, there was no context for it. When other men broke God's commandments, he kept them. When other men were deaf to God's warnings, Noah listened to them. When other men laughed at God, Noah revered him. When other men disregarded God, Noah saw him as a supreme reality in the world. So it took faith because of the culture which was wicked, the call which was unprecedented, and the task which was overwhelming. It was just a really big boat. And it was just a really long time. And there was just a lot of opposition. And so he needed faith. Now we ask ourselves, in closing, how can we relate? Well, we live in a cultural context more similar to Noah's than we may think. We live in a cultural context of extreme wickedness and yet coming judgment, don't we? You see, in the New Testament, Jesus uses the culture and the story of Noah to speak about his coming. He says in Matthew 24, when the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up until the time Noah entered the boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. And you see, we're living right before the coming of the Lord, I believe. And so according to the Bible and observation, we're in a cultural context that is very similar to Noah's, that of wickedness and opposition. And the Lord told us it would be like this. And so we, like Noah then, need to endeavor to live a life of faith that starts with worship, which yields wor walking, which turns into working. It means that we believe God, we adjust our lives, and we build for God. Not only do we live in a cultural context more similar to Noah's than we think, but we have a call more similar to Noah's than we think. Hebrews eleven seven by faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared the ark for salvation of his household. He prepared. He worked. That word prepare in the Greek means to furnish, to adorn fully, to get ready. We are told over and over and over in the New Testament to get ready for the coming of the Lord. To be involved in the work of God's kingdom because he's, because he's coming very soon to be involved in the work of evangelism, to be about our Father's business. You see, our call is just like Noah's. Now, we don't need to prepare an ark. Christ is the ark. Christ is the one that saves through and from the judgment. But we're called to get people in the ark. We're called 
to be in partnership with God to invite people in. And Noah's building of the ark in itself was a sermon. Just the act of obeying God was a sermon to the wicked world, a testimony to the wicked world. He had a life that was changed, a life that was purposeful, even though nobody else understood. Yet it was a sermon. That is why, once again, Noah is called in 2 Peter a preacher of righteousness. We do this by proclaiming Jesus Christ in the gospel and how we live and what we do. We preach the gospel not just with words, but with actions. Actions speak louder than words. He believed God and he acted on it even though it was 120 years out. And what I believe is that we're a lot closer to the coming of the Lord and the judgment of the Lord than 120 years. And we could debate about that till we're blue in the face, but that's what I think. And I'm gonna order my life accordingly because Jesus said, that you're in real trouble if you think otherwise. If you have the attitude and the mindset, oh, pfft, he's not coming for a long time. You're in trouble. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 25, starting verse 44. Speaking of his coming, he said, for this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave? whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master's not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That doesn't sound good. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but that doesn't sound good. Therefore, in light of the fact that Jesus Christ said he's coming again, we need to make adjustments to our lives that we can build for God's glory according to God's grace by faith. The culture and the call, which we have in common with Noah, beckon us to build for God. And finally, we have a task more similar to Noah's than we think. You see, what Noah did was he confronted culture with his obedience. And we're called to confront culture with Christ. We're not called to acquiesce to culture. We're not called to disengage from culture. Christians are not to be isolationists. We're called to engage and confront culture with, culture with the reality of Jesus Christ and the gospel. It's the same task that Noah had. And Noah did it with reverence, it says in Hebrews eleven seven. And that word reverence means to be thoughtful, cautious, circumspect. To be afraid in the sense of reverentially. To be moved or impressed with natural or religious fear. You see, Noah's, Noah had reverence that brought action. Here's a disconnect in the church. We're lacking reverence for God. Because we've remade in the modern church God in our image. And Jesus Christ becomes our bro. Dude, Jesus. Our homie. Our friend, our problem solver. The big guy in the sky. It's not who he is. He's the eternal, everlasting God of the universe who is holy and righteous and demands our worship and deserves our worship for whose glory we ought to live. And because we are living in a church culture that reeks with irreverence toward Jesus Christ, very few of us are on task. You see, it was his reverence for God that caused Noah to put his hand to the task. Maybe if you're lacking reverence, you need to return to that place of worshiping. The more you worship God, the more you realize how holy and awesome he is. The more you walk with God, the more you realize how awesome he is and how cheesy you are. And that gets us on task. We start to see, wow, the world's not about me, is it? Gosh, I really thought it was. 
not about me. It's not about my stuff and my wants. God wants to bless me, but I need to determine to go to God's place on God's path at God's pace. I need to believe and adjust and build. I, like Noah, live in a wicked culture, have a profound call and a big task. And so I will commit myself to a life of faith. We do these things according to what we believe God has said, that he's going to judge the world, but he wants to save people and he has provided a way. Therefore, we preach the gospel in our family, with our kids, with our friends at the workplace. Some of you aren't real gifted in speaking it. Your gift is living it. That's awesome. We live it and we say it. But we do it. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. I don't want to get to the end of my life and realize that everything was toil and vanity. I want to know that the things I'm doing right now are not in vain, that I'm abounding in the work of the Lord. This is a call on every Christian. This is a call on your life just as it was for Noah. And it requires faith. And God supplies faith. Let's ask him. Lord, we thank you for this great example in Noah. You only had great faith because you are a great God and you are the same God yesterday, today, and forever. You are great. And so we pray now as we prayed at the beginning of the message that you would loom larger in our lives. Give us a better perspective of who you are. Lord, help us right now in this moment to decrease that you might increase. Help us to surrender our lives. Thank you, God, that we don't need to be afraid that you're a taker, you're a giver. Thank you that you're not a whining God who says, I need you but you're an awesome God who says, I love you. Work these truths deep into our heart, Lord, please, and cause them to be transformative. And Holy Spirit, help us to apply them to our daily lives. Show us how to adjust and how to build, how to engage in culture according to the call and the task. Help us, Lord. Let's be real careful now to really press into the Lord. Prayer team will be over to your right. If you need help, they're there for you. Holy Spirit, speak to us.